Hello and welcome to the Mick Poisson podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Joining me today is Carol Houle, the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Financial Services and Insurance at Atos. Carol is a builder and renovator of businesses for companies seeking to focus on strategic digital transformations. For over 20 years now, Carol has demonstrated the proven ability to build organizations with modern digital capabilities. She's known as a connector of people and concepts to solve complex business problems while building new digital business models. In her personal life, Carol is a practitioner of yoga, meditation, and mindfulness, and some of those principles come up in our conversation throughout the podcast. So with that, let's get started. Carol, welcome to the Project to Product podcast. It's, it's great to have you here. You and I have had some just amazing learning experiences working with common clients, uh, helping them on this, these transformation journeys. So before we dig into all of that, at some of your success stories, some of your, your horror stories maybe that you'll share with us, uh, I'd just love to, to hear how you, know, how you got here, how you got to this point of helping these, these very large organizations with this critical uh, activity of taking an agile approach to their transformation. So, so just tell us a bit about where you started, your, your background, your history. Absolutely. And thank you so much. I'm, I'm grateful to be on your podcast. You know, I've been a fan of yours for, for years. I started right out of college with Consulting. So I've been a developer, tester, DBA, pull cables through a data center, you know, project manager, program manager, you name it in technology, I've probably done it. And in the mid-90s, I was a part of the supply chain management practice at Pricewaterhouse. So we were applying lean principles to client supply chains to help them become more efficient, you know, take cost out, improve the flow. And those were, were primarily product companies. So when those same principles were applied to the software delivery lifecycle, I was an early adopter of Lean Agile and applied those practices uh, on all my client engagements. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, you and I have, have worked together for, for a really long time. You know, over the course of time, um, I've built, you know, really strong, high-performing teams. And, you know, early in my career, I was focused more on helping, uh, you know, building teams to help clients transform. Uh, in, the, in the recent, you know, probably last seven years, I've focused more on renovating the companies that I work for. And a big part of that is introducing uh, those organizations to how you apply some of the the principles of enabling continuous delivery as an operating model, um, you know, to what they do within their within their company. Awesome, and it's just interesting to hear because I've met other people who, like you, have kind of come from some background in supply chain management, background in finance. Mm-hmm seen things working effectively in those product-oriented organizations and, and then seen what things look like in technology and IT and, and, and like the rest of us have been scratching your head. So <laughs> how, like, can you just give some highlights of, of what good looked like back then like when you were actually engaging with those clients in the early days and before you realized yeah. how much opportunity we have to improve in, in technology? Absolutely. So I think I did my first cloud strategy back in 2011. Um, and, and shortly thereafter, um, I was introduced to uh, Michael Wagner, who's been a big teacher for me. He actually told me about you and your book. 
a gentleman named uh, Mo Madhoon, and then uh, a guy named Bart Driscoll. And part of what we we put together in the early days was, you know, a method to help organizations transform to continuous delivery. And instead of using uh, what I would say is a waterfall-based approach to lean agile transformation, actually uh, applying lean principles to a transformation. Because what we found is that, you know, most clients were taking kind of the legacy, you know, program management approach, and they were using a waterfall way of thinking to try to help their organization change. And what happened is the transformation died under its own weight, you know, because it was just too heavy and there was too much time between uh, the work that they were doing and the value that they were seeing. And so as one example, and, and this was, this was a, a great company to work with. Uh, it was an insurance company. And um, on this one, I worked with a gentleman named Dan Sinney, who, um, who's followed me through the years. He, he came to a, the current company that I'm with. Um, we worked with an insurance company to introduce a new uh, technical product for cybersecurity insurance. And at the time, nobody else in the market had it. There was no other insurance company that had this product. And they knew that they needed to get it to market quickly, right? So the, the flow of value for them was, was really essential. And what we did is, you know, we worked with them in a model where we helped them, you know, kind of lay out the end-to-end business value stream, not only from the technology standpoint, which is typically what you think of, um, but also from the business standpoint. And, you know, we had these great ideas and I'll never forget this first um, session that I had with, uh, with the, the new CIO at the time and the leadership team that he inherited. One of the, the guys who had been with this insurance company for many, many years, this new CIO had to leave the room for, for a minute. He said to the rest of us, Five years from now, we'll still be talking about this and nothing will have changed. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've met I've, those people. <laughs> I've heard that too often and it's been true too often, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, um, in a pretty short period of time, we took them from, you know, doing 11 releases a year to 3,700 releases a year. And the, the thing that really inspired me by, by this work with this particular client is that what we did was basically eradicated release weekends. And, and you know, you grew up in software development too. So like how many nights were you up at two o'clock in the morning, you know, trying to figure out what happened with the release, <laughs> you know, with, with these huge release cycles? And and just the the human impact of being able to have the flow of value be more incremental, and and giving people back their weekends, right? Giving them back their life um, was something that was was really inspiring to me. And this business now, the cybersecurity insurance business, is actually a four billion dollar business now. You know, fast forward, and there's over thirty thousand policyholders that they have for this business. So it was just a really great example of what you talk about in your book. You know, when you when you really focus not necessarily only on developing software fast, but really focus on, you know, how do you execute on a strategy in more of a lean agile way. Right. Yeah. Now I will I'll actually uh be forthcoming here, but I've I've never had the release weekends. So with my my first uh <laughs> 
my first oh, professional. You missed out on cold missed, pizza yeah, and donuts. I, I try my best to empathize with people, and I, as I look over in horror, what's what when these things happen, you know, have been happening, and in some cases still continue to. But yeah, no, my first job in '99, we we automated everything with cruise control. We had, we had continuous CI and largely CD. So it was, it was at least at least daily releases at that point or on demand releases. But um, yeah, it's been fascinating to see how unevenly back then those practices were distributed. And of course, as you're saying, the last decade, yeah, how there's still a journey for some organizations and for, for parts of portfolios that, that are still kind of you know, stuck in those dark ages. But yeah. so I, I want to go back to what you said, though, because I think oftentimes this starts with a desire to have daily releases and continuous delivery. And of course, a lot of organizations, I actually, in enterprise organizations, they're still kind of in, in some phase of continuous integration and not continuous delivery. Teams are not, all, not self-certifying the releases and can't release on demand and so on, right? So I think that journey is there. The need for it is very well understood, right? There's, I think it's, it's unambiguous right now that every organization needs this. But what you said is so often it fails just by how heavy a lift and in the end, the waterfall project plan gets created to go through this. So can you unpack that? Because I think, you know, I'll never forget a call that we were on when you actually took a client through this, uh, saying you can't yeah. be waterfall about your agile transformation. Maybe yeah. you could just because it's so ironic, you, it's a bad idea. Um, but obviously, <laughs> an agile transformation is such a complex thing. You need a feedback cycle. You need a way of measuring whether things are improving. So yeah. ever since you, I heard you say that, I've been repeating it all over the place. So to just kind of take us through how you got there and really how you approach it. Does being agile mean starting really small in your agile transformation? Or does it mean sampling more frequently? Adjust? How, how do you think about it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. And, you know, I think, you know, initially when I started working with that first insurance company, the thing that I recognized is that, you know, we were great at using backlogs, right? Product backlogs for prioritizing features. And, you know, Usually feature chasing, I would say, is what most organizations were doing. And so at some point, you know, as we were prioritizing the the feature backlog, you know, and kind of in this company was, they were just starting on their journey for uh, scaled agile. So we weren't really doing, you know, PI planning sessions, but we were having kind of a prioritization and planning session. And it occurred to me that what if... What if we could baseline and measure how this organization is doing right now, right? And in the the kind of the the metrics that matter, and your fl- your flow metrics are, are, I believe, a critical part of that. But s- some other metrics are important too that have to do with more like the the human dynamics, right, of change. And so I said to myself, we really should take you know all the things that we know this client needs to transform and break them down into small enough components so that we basically have a transformation backlog. And it was really a, a eureka moment for me. And it's the, the point at which I started being really curious about how you could instrument a digital transformation. And this is where TaskTop came into play. Because what I found is that you've just done a beautiful job in the software of 
you know, creating these visualizations so that you can see where the bottlenecks are, right? And so, you know, having the, the bottleneck be apparent is one thing, and that is one point of feedback, right? But then taking that and in smaller increments, breaking apart, like what do we need to change in order to really remove that bottleneck, right? And then putting that into an actual transformation backlog, you can use JIRA, JIRA line, whatever, it doesn't really matter. You know, that I feel like is one really important element. And then there's more of the, the qualitative, like more of the human dynamic, how teams operate. And I know you've had Sally Alata on the show. And so you know, pairing TaskTop with Agility Health Radar, where TaskTop is more of the quantitative metrics, and then using Agility Health Radar as the qualitative performance metrics, those are really great feedback loops um, on, you know, helping clients to understand where they are in their, uh, you know, in their journey to learn how to develop the right technical product in the right way faster. And the thing that I've been working on in the last two years or so is, okay, now, how do you start to instrument for business value, right? And, and, and how do you make it more of an automatic process so that you can easily tie what is delivering value based on the software that you just delivered, right? And what can you prioritize next? To, d- to deliver more business value, really, and to really in- improve the flow of business value. Yes, I think you make it sound very straightforward. Um, <laughs> this, that transformation backlog you know, makes, it, makes a ton of sense. It's amazing. It's, it's not a concept that, that I think I, I hear more, more frequently. But, and then, of course, connecting that with, a qual- I think, like you said, like the qualitative and the quantitative metrics, right, in the end, and, and seeing how those are driving business outcomes. And I think that would definitely what, I, what you said about the baseline and the measurement, I am seeing good companies take that approach, right? Is to understand what is our baseline right now and how are we improving and what are the small number of, of metrics we're going to look at to determine if we're improving and how frequently and really baking that into their, their operating model. But Carol, the... So again, I think that makes sense. That would make sense to most technology leaders, the, the approach that you have. But you work very closely with, with you know, CXOs. Yeah. So who are yeah. then footing very large bills for these transformations. And of course, and, and then they're accountable to their CEOs and to their boards. And, and everyone in the end wants a waterfall project plan. So when, when that much money is on the line. So how... Has it been just a matter of educating those executives that you work with on the fact that this approach is more effective because you need the fast feedback? How have you approached this? It's almost like a natural tension. It's the same way I've noticed that a lot of, let's say, boards want extremely high flow predictability, that everything is 100% predictable when they make the plans for the year. Meanwhile, that's the opposite of Agile, obviously, right? If we have 100% flow predictability, we've just created waterfall roadmaps and plans. And, and in uncertain markets, maybe we only want 50% predictability so the teams can respond quickly and have autonomy. But how, because clearly, and I've watched you do this in live in, in front of those executives, but can, can take us through kind of your own mindset and approach for how you, how you deal with this natural and really massive tension. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can't tell you how many times, and I'll give you one example, but how many times I've been brought in by the business to fix IT. 
And it turns out it's the business is the problem. Mm. That, that's where the bottleneck is. Uh, there was a uh, Canadian company that I worked with a few years ago, and they're basically trying to become the Netflix of Canada. Uh, and, you know, they, they had a real problem with, with the flow of, you know, features, functions. They needed to get this new platform out to market quickly to be competitive. And, you know, the, the business did not recognize uh, their need to change. And I think, you know, the, the technology teams, because, you know, typically the funding models, right, are that the business actually is paying mm-hmm. for the technology initiatives the technology team was afraid to say it. Yeah. They were afraid to say, you know, mm, okay, uh, business person, you know, chief marketing officer, what have you, you're actually the bottleneck. And everybody has good intentions, right? But everybody has very good intentions. They all want to, to improve, you know, but 90% of, of success or failure in this kind of digital transformation is between the ears. And it's about changing the mindset of, of the executives. and you know, in this kind of digital transformation, people matter, right? People matter. I mean, that we, you know, we know the technology is going to work for the most part. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit more predictable, but what I've tried to focus on is, you know, what are those learning opportunities for executives on the business side, you know, CFOs, CMOs, you know, you, you name it on a line of business leaders where they can start to understand their part in the flow of value. And I'll give you an example and, and kind of relate it to how power is generated. And this may be a stretch, but follow me here. So, um, so if you know anything about power generation, right, you've got big power plant and the electricity comes out in this huge pipe, right? And over the course of many transitions, that electrical current is, is kind of brought down, right, to, to a small enough, you know, voltage that when you plug something into an outlet, you don't get electrocuted, right? It just works. And when you take, when you take an idea or a concept or a strategy, right, you have to do that same thing, right? You have to be able to move from, you know, something that is very high level, conceptual, to something that a developer can consume. Um, and, and that whole upfront discovery, you know, the business understanding what they need to, uh, create to translate something from this is our strategy to something that a developer can actually work with. It's something that I found has been a real, uh, a blind spot for, for most organizations, the whole upfront, you know, product discovery and, you know, to gain true business agility. You know, we have to be able to to help our business partners kind of rethink how they engage with technology, and that it's not about you know throwing ideas and requirements over the fence. Um, it's really about co-creating a future together, right? By having a shared understanding of what's valuable and and how um, how we get that in front of you know paying customers quickly, so that you know, ultimately they want to grow their business, right? With technology. Yeah. And Carol, I think I, I share your experience in the sense that there's, there's good intentions and there's just so many old ways of working where for their whole careers, many of these people have been look, you know, looking at economies of scale and how to kind of optimize the work that goes over the fence. 
rather yes. than being part of that work, right? Rather than being part of those value streams. So I guess in some cases, it's a pretty significant lift in terms of mindset change in education. So do you, like, you know, what, what is your guidance? Do you, do you, like, is, is it something that needs to be regularly reinforced? Like, how do you, how do you approach this? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that small increments of change add up over time. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of a healthcare payer here in the U.S. that um, that I had worked with for a few years, and they were adopting, you know, more of a product-based organization, right, um, along end-to-end business value streams, and you know that that model was something that was very different and new, um, you know, for for their 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 business for their technology teams. We, we basically reorganized the teams into value stream aligned teams and then had a continuous delivery enablement team that had the purpose of managing the transformation backlog, right? And, uh, and, and working through with the business to improve the flow. And, you know, one of the things that we had as a regular practice was to ha- have special sessions, special, you know, focus sessions for the executives and we didn't necessarily call it coaching mm-hmm. but it was really more one-on-one work you know to to help the executives understand what they needed to change and to be very mindful about what they say what they do and how it affects the rest of the team and it's been really an interesting journey um Nick because you know, personally, I've been practicing mindfulness and meditation for, for a number of years. And I see a really tight connection between some of those practices and principles and what organizations need to do in order to change their, their mindset. And, and people change for very personal reasons, right? And, and at the end of the day, this is all about an individual deciding whether it's a developer or a CEO deciding that they're going to change something that they do to, to make this shift. And that change has to come from a higher place, right? It, it's it's it, a higher place in you, right? To get a little metaphysical about it. I mean, you know, y- you have to believe that somehow you know, changing your mindset to, you know, if you're an executive to, to push decision authority down to the people who are closest to the information, like you have to have faith and believe that if you do that, you know, over the course of time, you will get different outcomes. But, you know, that, that fine line between faith and fear, I think it's hard for a lot of people, but it's what you need to cross you know, what you need to figure out in order to actually make this work. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a ton of sense. And the, I'm certainly hearing more appreciation for the need to, 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 like the shift from project to product is a shift of mindset, right? It is. And yeah. unless that ma- mindset shift, shift happens, I think, as you said, un- unless there's acknowledgement from a higher place within the individuals and with fundamentally within the organization, uh, yeah. that a, a change needs to happen. The change won't happen, right? The activities will happen. Maybe some, even some of the metrics will happen, but nothing will will really improve, right? And we still, I guess, the other thing I'm seeing often is when there's in there's a desire to do it, but there isn't enough of a mindset change, and that mindset change is not operationalized in the right way. Things snap back to the old behaviors when. You know, the next planning cycle happens, or the next set of urgent work happens, and where you know wherever you, 
we are in the in the organization. Because I, I think we we all see different dynamics on this, right? Like in some cases, there are a bunch of agile teams who want to do the right work, are doing the right work, but then the next layer up of management, that middle management, has not gone through the mindset change. Or in some cases, it is the executive or the business side, right? That hasn't that thinks they're not part of the agile the shift to agility. So how do you, do you think it needs to start with, with the top with executives undergoing the change? Or do you think, how do we deal with the cases where it's, you know, executives are changing, but the kind of middle management is waiting for the next round of executives <laughs> to go through? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, it, it is a great question. I, I think it has to be both top down and bottom up. And a, a big part of this change is recognizing that, you know, the, the old control paradigm is not the right way to, to approach this kind of change because control is an illusion, right? Thinking that you have control over, you know, people and things and how, you know, how something's going to run, you, you never really do, you know, if you think about it. And so I think for, for executives, it's important to think about this kind of change in terms of, you know, what is our business strategy? What do we want to drive towards? And what are the important decisions that I personally have to make? Because if, you know, if you were to list out, have, an, have a CEO, a, a, a CFO, a CMO, list out all the things that they thought that they needed to decide on, it would probably be a pretty big list. And it's just a fallacy, right? I, I think there's, there's comfort in feeling like you have control and you're the decision maker. But what they don't realize is that it actually reduces your flow, right? Because you become the bottleneck, right? Now, you know, I say top down and bottom up because people who are, you know, on the bottom of the hierarchy, right? Uh, which is what most, you know, large organizations are still in. They're in a, in a hierarchy. They have to be in a position where they will take the risk to make the decision. And, and it's this dance. It's interesting. I was just talking to a client about this Monday where this client who's an executive was saying, well, people keep on coming to me to make these decisions, which they should be able to make themselves. And, and so I asked, well, what do you do? You know, do you make that decision for them? You know, because if you make that decision for them, you're reinforcing the cycle, right? But but if you if you say to them, what are your options and and how would you measure success in that? And you make the decision, right? It it, it gives them the uh, the the feeling that okay, uh, I am empowered to make this decision, and it's scary, you know, but I'm I'm going to do it. So. I think it's a it's a small incremental process, right? Because if you think about, you know, changing your own behavior, you know, me personally changing something that I do, I have to kind of test it and then see how it feels, see how it worked, right? What was the result? Did that feel good? Not yet. No. Okay. And then and then it's through that reinforcement, right? Where where that dance between the senior executives and the people on the ground you know, you have to change the dance, right? You have to change that, that power dynamic. And, you know, I, I tell my team all the time, like I intentionally hire people that I can learn from that are, are smarter than me in, in, in many in different ways. And, you know, my job is to help them be successful and to remove impediments for them. My job is not to make decisions on everything. And that's a little uncomfortable for some people. 
Okay, and so I think that, and of course, we, we you know, the, the effectiveness of that kind of servant leadership and empowerment, I think, is, is, is well studied and understood. So it becomes a question of how you get the organization there, right? So I think that changing behavior and executives to drive that empowerment and autonomy is key. In the end, I think, like how, because they need a feedback loop, right? They need to see that this is actually working, that we created better decisions, that that the teams took the right steps. So does this get back yeah. to your measurement? Because it does. Okay. Yeah. No, you're spot on, and and that's you know, that's where I think instrumenting a digital transformation is so critical because, you know, you you have to have both quantitative and qualitative feedback loops to say, okay me changing my behavior has actually had a positive impact. Right. Right. And, you know, we're, you know, we're analytical. Uh, most of us are analytical people and you need to see the data, right? You need to see that there's a trend line. And when I delegate decisions down to people, decisions are better. It moves faster. Um, you know, I, I see, I see the light bulb go on in business leaders. And this happened with that Canadian firm where, they didn't realize the impact of their words, right? They didn't realize that what they were asking for was basically flooding the team, right? And, you know, Sally Alata always says, if you want to improve the flow, stop the flooding. Mm -hmm. And and it's so true, yeah. right? And, and being able to see that, oh, okay, as an executive, if I can just step back, and instead of me coming up with all these ideas that I think are brilliant and, and you know, telling the team to go do it, if I can just kind of step back and not behave that way, right? Not, not uh, you know, unintentionally flood the team, you know, the results are going to change. So, you know, it's really about the executives redefining how they add value. Yeah. Right. They don't add value by making all the decisions. They add value by by explaining to the team what's valuable from a business standpoint, right? Which comes back around, Mick, to what we've what we've been talking about with clients recently in you know tracking and monitoring business value, right, and, and quantifying it. Yeah, and I think this is why some of the successful examples we've seen, right, which is creating that feedback loop where when executives see that they've actually reduced the work and and in, in process, you know, and work in yeah. progress, flow load is down. They actually got more velocity that drove an outcome. It's it just takes once for them to see that, and then yes. to realize the power of it because it is you know it can be either counterintuitive or just not the way they've they've operated in the past. So, so in yes. the end, it's but of course this takes setting up those systems right where they actually have those feedback loops because until the feedback loops are there, there's not a sense of control or you know there's there's just there's a lot of perception of risk by yeah. delegating too much or not being in 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 the loop on the right things and so on. So, what's your guidance on? And as you mentioned, like that transformation backlog, right? What's your guidance on who sets that up? Who owns this? Who owns it? What are what are the systems? What's what's kind of the, the feedback loop to give executives the kinds of transparency that they need to often take these kinds of leaps? And there's a leap, right? Like that. That whip thing is a, is a leap. Um, so fast feedback that the leap worked to your point on measuring and, and, and baselining is key. But who sets up this? Like, when oftentimes these systems are just not in place. And then of course yeah. you'll often hear the story. Oh, oh well, we're not ready for this. But but continuing yeah. the way that things are going is even worse. So then actually getting that baseline and setting up those systems. So 
who owns it, who's responsible, who's, who's part of the feedback loop? How do you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. So part of what I like to do um, is to have different level visuals and governance tools, if you will, depending on the, the, the part of the organization that you work at, right? So you've got the team level, you've got kind of the team of teams, the, the executive level. What I've been focusing on and what my team has been focusing on in the last few years is, you know, with the executive level, having, you know, more board, I'll call it board worthy dashboards um, that allow them to really look at the world through the lens of what is the business value that we're delivering? What are we learning? Right. Because I think it's really important that the way in which you inspire the team to greatness is who's learning us fastest, right? Because there'll be some teams that can move very fast, right? Their, Their flow will be incredible but it's because they're not dealing with legacy, right? And, and they're not having to, you know, transform this backend system of record, you know, as they're developing a new experience, right? So it's not fair yeah. to measure them kind of, you know, in a, in a black and white manner. So, you know, I think having the flow metrics and some of the visualizations that TaskTop creates for board-worthy reporting is one element of that. And and I had mentioned earlier, I, I like the combination of TaskTop and Agility Health Radar because both have the capability to automatically produce visualizations and, and dashboards and, and growth plans for different levels in the organization. Um, you know, Sally Elada has done a fantastic job of of creating, you know, enterprise business agility radars and and growth platforms that you can use you know with different levels of people in the organization. So I think you have to be very intentional about it. And I would also say that the the governance and how you create the 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 continual improvement method within an organization also depends on the maturity of the organization. You know, the healthcare payer that I worked with in the US, we were very intentional about putting in place a continuous delivery enablement team. And their job is to, you know, work with and upskill and make sure that at a team level and a team of teams level, you know, that everything is functioning well across the value streams. And they're just now getting to the point where they've they've been asked to work with the business side, you know, and to to you know, and it's a, it's a uh, it's a uh, I will say you know kind of a fine line that you have to walk because. You know, the business executives don't necessarily want to believe that they have to be coached and, and developed and there are things that they can learn, but that's the truth of the matter. And so, you know, one of the things, one of the practices that I, I recommended to them is that they actually have executives from their company coaching other executives. Because in every organization, you have executives who get it and who have gone through that journey. Yeah. And you have executives who are kind of early in, in that path. And so, you know, learning from your peers is a really important aspect of this. So you have executive level people who can work together. You've got that next, you know, kind of mid-level management. You can do the same thing. And that from a team um, construct, you know, typically what I do is, you know, you, you get a few teams going, you get them up to speed, and then you start to seed, if you will, the people from those teams that really get it and understand it and have applied it to teams who are just learning. 
And so, so you, you start to, to spread the wealth, spread the knowledge throughout the organization. Because, you know, you know, Mick, this is the kind of transformation that you have to be building something. You learn by doing. You can't go sit in a classroom and figure it out, right? It's, it's very experiential. Yeah, and this is actually it's kind of where you started. This, this, those board-worthy dashboards, it's been really interesting for me to see how effective those can be. Because my sense is that the, that, that team level Things generally work better. It's well better understood what kind of metrics are important, the, the telemetry, and the teams tend to know what to do to get burden out of their own way. But that team of teams level and, and of course, the executive level, and to your point, learning by doing, right? Like there needs to be a practice of doing the new thing. And so creating those board-worthy dashboards and using those to, they force that conversation with business leaders, right? Saying, this is, this is how we're going to now report to the CEO, to the board. And this is how we're reporting how much we're investing in tech debt um, and yep. improvement. And, and it, if, it forces the discussion and oftentimes the learning. Well, what, what does that actually mean? What do we get back for tech debt work? Why, why are we spending 30% of our capacity on defect work? No one told me that. Um, so yeah. it, it just yeah. unco- demystifies, I think, some of what's buried between kind of on both sides of the house as, as well as the other way, right? Where oftentimes some of the technology leaders may not actually be as up to speed on them what the business outcome metrics that are critical to this year's strategy are. So, Absolutely. And, you know, business value is one of those tricky things that even business leaders have trouble articulating and, and being able to quantify and measure business value, right? Uh, and, and yet it's something that we always talk about. So, you know, I, I think instrumentation of business value and really connecting to your point, you know, business outcomes, board-worthy dashboards, you know, it's, it's all an essential part of making this kind of transformation work. And, you know, even at the executive level, having a cycle where, you know, you really evaluate, you know, how you've been operating as an executive team and, you know, are you actually practicing business agility yourself, right? You know, if you look at kind of the traditional way of thinking about strategy, you know, it's very long-term thinking. But if you look at digital strategy and, and how you need to, you know, thrive, you know, not only survive, but thrive in the digital age. You have to apply those same principles of feedback loops and incremental change to to the executive ranks, yeah. and it's and it's not something that they're typically used to doing. But but I find that the organizations that nail that they're the ones that start moving the the most quickly in the right direction, and they start seeing that benefit of that fast feedback. Was mm-hmm. in, in the end, it empowers their decision making, right? So, yeah, yeah. awesome. Well, and yeah, I'm definitely a, a big fan as well of the the work that that Sally's been doing on this front and and stopping the flooding. I think we're, we're all after that that same thing. So, Carol, we're almost at time. Any any last thoughts to to leave our listeners with on on taking the next steps on putting in place? I think some of the great great practices that 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 you've you've gotten into so many other organizations. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I. You know. I, I think that, you know, digital transformation, it's the vehicle to build relationships, right? It is, and it's relationships between people like you and me, right? It's relationships with your strategic partners. You know, I, I see this more um, as, a, as an ecosystem of people and companies working together 
for the purpose of improving, you know, and, and benefiting the outcomes that we all are able to achieve. Uh, I, I think that, you know, using data and instrumentation for quick feedback is really essential. And don't be afraid to pivot or persevere on your transformation, really. I mean, you know, the more we can all bring lean startup to the enterprise and, and how we're transforming how we operate, the more effective we're going to be, you know, as, as people, as, as organizations. And uh, just really grateful for all the work that you've done in this space, Mick, and uh, really happy to call you my friend. Thank you, Carol. And likewise, and I think it's a, that's a really neat thought to leave us with, right? Because in the end, they're like, we're a generation of professionals who are, who are trying to figure this out. And then in these yeah. other spaces, like supply chains or manufacturing, they've had multiple <laughs> generations yeah. of professionals who, who, who did work together in this way to, to solve these problems. And I think we're just working with them in a whole other level in terms of the kind of complexity and collaboration it takes to do this in, in technology and, and digital. So amazing. Well, thank you so much for your contributions to this whole professional generation, Carol. People will reach out to you, I'm sure, and follow up with you on LinkedIn and elsewhere to, to learn more. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you to Carol for enlightening us today. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags one or Project to Product. You can also find Carol on LinkedIn. I have a new episode every few weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to spreading women and minorities in technology. Also, don't forget to join the Flow Framework community on Slack, which you can find on flowframework.org. Thanks, and until next time.